Right now on Law and Crime's Daily Debrief, the tragic death of Kobe Bryant in a chopper crash now raising legal questions. There is definitely civil liability. This is not an act of God. Plus, I told him no, 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 but he insisted. The accuser, whose account led to two of the five criminal counts against Harvey Weinstein, takes the stand also. We have lunges at the officer, we have punches to the officer. The alleged Parkland school shooter fights over whether an officer he's accused of assaulting can plead the fifth. And the state rests in the trial of the man fellow inmates feared was a witch. The Daily Debrief brings you the day in court. It's Monday, January 27th. Good evening, everybody. Legal drama is likely to unfold following the chopper crash, which killed NBA player Kobe Bryant over the weekend. Bryant, who was 41, and his daughter, who was just 13, both died along with seven others when their chopper reportedly made a climbing turn and then a rapid dive in foggy weather. The airport, or the aircraft rather, was reportedly owned by a company called Island Express Helicopters of California. The company states on its website that it goes above and beyond the minimum FAA safety requirements, far exceeding certain air carrier standards. Former federal prosecutor Andrew Maloney now practices civil litigation and frequently handles cases involving air disasters. Today on the Law and Crime Network, Maloney discussed what he thinks happened here. This pilot did have training in what we call instrument flight rules. That's somebody who is trained to fly in low visibility weather, but it's always dangerous to do that. You get spatial disorientation, which is what it looks like occurred here. Once you get inside, it's, it's like a total blackout condition, and you can't see what's up and what's down. A slight variation, a slight turn like this, you may not feel um, in, a, in a helicopter or an airplane. And if you're in a slight turn, you're starting to move and you're also descending. So if you're in an area where you need to maintain your altitude, like in a mountainous terrain, which is where this accident happened, you may be losing altitude and not realizing it if you're looking out your window instead of looking at your altimeter. And in that, in that environment that he was in, uh, the altimeter is, is actually changing all the time because the terrain is sloping. If you're in a mountainous area and you're close to those mountains, one second you could be a thousand feet above terrain and just to your right, really only a few hundred yards away, you could only be a hundred feet off the terrain because the mountain is sloping down. Maloney went on to share his legal assessment of what he thinks may happen next. We are right now talking about what is most obvious and to me it looks like a pilot error issue. If the pilot is uh, responsible for the accident, pilot error, uh, his employer, whoever employed him um, and owned the helicopter will have potential civil liability. Uh, the employer through vicarious liability for their employee, the acts of their employees uh, is also negligent and they would hopefully have a lot of insurance. The FARs, the, they're the Federal Aviation Regulations govern pilot conduct, what pilots are supposed to do and not do. Essentially, they're supposed to use reasonable care under the circumstances. That's the general negligence standard that applies in every industry. In the Federal Aviation Regulations, they do talk about weather. They do talk about avoiding bad weather. They do talk about what to do if you're in bad weather. And they talk about the necessary training and certification that you need to fly if you're going to go into what we call instrument flight rules, uh, where you have fog or clouds uh, flying into bad weather. And it looks like this pilot had that kind of training, but it's always, uh, in my opinion, a mistake to fly into weather like that if you don't have to. We do have to prove what, what was negligent, what he did here and what he shouldn't have done here and why it caused the accident. So in any negligence case, you have to show that there was a breach of a duty, a duty of care, 
and that's to act reasonable under the circumstances or a violation of a, a federal aviation regulation. The second, that that violation, that that duty, that breach of that duty proximately caused injury. And then, of course, the last part is the damages that are related to the, the accident. Excellent. So just because there was an accident doesn't mean there's liability. That has to be proven, and that's what I do. If the case came across your desk, would you take it? Yes or no? Absolutely. We will be following this case to see if any litigation is filed, and as you heard Attorney Maloney say, he expects that it will be. The first of the Harvey Weinstein accusers whose account led to criminal charges took the stand against the former movie producer today. Mimi Halle te tearfully testified that Weinstein forced oral sex upon her in his New York loft in 2006 and raped her two weeks later in a New York hotel room. She said Weinstein easily overpowered her because of his size. He would push me back and hold me down, she said, of the first alleged attack. Later, she said she met Weinstein in his hotel room to try to make sense of what happened the first time and understand why. She says that's when a second attack began, quote, almost instantly. On cross, defense attorney Damon Sharonis brought up a June 2008 email Halle sent to Weinstein saying it was great to see him at the Cannes Film Festival, reminding him that she was a, quote, genius and wishing him, quote, lots of love. The first two of the five counts Weinstein faces relate to Halle's accusations. Predatory sexual assault could carry a possible life sentence on the maximum end. To prove it, prosecutors must show a pattern of conduct. Committing a criminal sexual act requires that prosecutors prove certain types of sexual conduct by forcible compulsion. The last three counts relate to a second accuser. Cameras, of course, are not allowed in New York trials, but Mimi Halle did speak to reporters in 2017 when she first came forward. Here's how she described her 2006 allegations against Weinstein. It was not long, though, before he was all over me making sexual advances. I told him no, 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 but he insisted. And then I said, I'm on my period. There is no way this is going to happen. Please stop. He wouldn't, take, he wouldn't take no for an answer and backed me into a room which was not lit but looked like a kid's bedroom with kids' drawings on the walls. He held me down on the bed. I tried to get away or tried to get him off of me and kept asking him to stop, but it was impossible. He was extremely persistent and physically overpowering. He then orally forced himself on me while I was on my period. He even pulled my tampon out. I was mortified. I was in disbelief and disgusted. I would not have wanted anyone to do that to me, even if the person had been a romantic partner. I remember Harvey afterwards rolling over onto his back saying, don't you feel we're so much closer to each other now? To which I replied, no. Let's bring in our guest for analysis now. Michael Bryant is an attorney and host here at the Law and Crime Network. Eklund Mercy practices criminal defense law in Atlanta. Eklund, what we heard on the witness stand in the courtroom today is basically exactly what Mimi Halle said in that press conference a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, and, you know, it's very compelling. The only issue is that I, I personally have an issue with trying a case in a court of public opinion. I feel like although she was getting her story out, um, 
Harvey Weinstein did not have the opportunity to cross-examine her. And I think that both parties, the alleged victims as well as the defendant, want justice. And, you know, you do not want to, you know, infringe on justice by, you know, having, you know, having issues outside and having the case being tried at, uh, in, in the court of public opinion and not in the actual courthouse. Eklund so being that, uh, critical of the, the tactics there. Michael Bryan, what do you make of the defense tactic to basically bring up this email two years later that says, quote, lots of love? We heard the prosecution experts saying that doesn't mean anything. It still means, or it could still be, that there was no consent, and that's what legally counts. Yeah, and we know why the prosecution brought in Dr. Ziv, because that's the whole case. Most people would think, common sense would say, hey, if you really had a, a bad experience, are you sending notes that suggest friendship, love, affection of some sort? No, you wouldn't. Well, if you believe the expert, you would. It's normal. We'll see you both in a couple of minutes for more analysis. Britain's Prince Andrew is providing, quote, zero cooperation in a probe into the case of millionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. Federal prosecutors with the Southern District of New York made those comments about the prince at an event to raise awareness about New York's Child Victims Act. Virginia Giuffre says Epstein flew her around the world and pressured her into having sex with the prince. Buckingham Palace did not respond to the prosecutor's comments when asked to do so by the Associated Press. A hearing today in a case against the young man accused of the Parkland, Florida high school massacre. Nicholas Cruz faces a separate trial for an attack on a sergeant while he was in jail. The problem is that the sergeant, Raymond Beltran, is accused of drunk driving while on the job in Washington state. He was there on the West Coast on a prisoner transport assignment, and his blood alcohol level was allegedly almost twice the legal limit. Attorneys in Cruz's case went before a judge today because the sergeant refused to answer some questions in a deposition. They asked Sergeant Beltran about the allegations against him, um, that his knowledge of the allegations against him, whether he knows what they are or not. That doesn't lead to an incriminating response. I mean, that can't incriminate Sergeant Beltran if he's aware of the allegations against him. Uh, we would all, every defendant is expected to know what the allegations are, are against them. That doesn't constitute evidence that could be used to, that could be used to convict Sergeant Beltran of a crime of DUI or any other criminal offense. I mean, look at the questions themselves. First of all, did the state of Washington allege that you drove a vehicle on a highway with an alcohol concentration of 0.15? Um, you know, did the state of Washington allege? He may not know exactly what they allege, and it, it, it is almost an admission. I mean, it's an, a circumspect admission for him to respond to any of that. He responded that they charged him with a DUI. He had already told that. Those are questions that were previous to this one. It is also irrelevant what the state of Washington is saying. The bottom line is it's the inquiry here, as the case law states, it's just whether the witness has a motive or a bias uh, that would influence their testimony. So there's no reason to ask what the state of Washington is alleging. The defense then asked the court to dismiss one of the two charges against Cruz for this jailhouse incident. From the time that this incident is alleged to have begun with what I believe was referred to as the charge until the time that Mr. Um, Cruz was put back into custody in the cell is a single continuing series. It is a single incident it takes place at the same time, at the same location, at the same with the same alleged victim, with absolutely no break in time. It's a continuing non-stop event. We have lunges at the officer, we have punches to the officer, um, and then we have uh, the event where he actually takes or attempts to take a taser 
um, actually does take the taser because he has it in his hand, and he attempts to hit the officer with it, thus using it as a blunt object, which would be a deadly weapon, and or he tries to activate it, which would have, you know, incapacitated the officer. But it's our theory of defense that having hit him with a head on it, you know, definitely makes it a deadly weapon because it's a pretty uh, hard object. Um, so, two different actions. Let's bring our panel in one more time on this case. Michael Bryant, I'll start with you. Why is the drunk driving situation in Washington State relevant to what happened in the jail with the accused Parkland shooter? You know, it seems there's this uh, problem with videotape disappearing everywhere. I'm not sure if Florida is now following the Epstein rule from New York where, hey, video's here, and then it's gone, then it's really gone. This was really a discovery issue, and I think that the defense is trying to suggest that the prosecution ain't playing fair, ain't disclosing everything they have or don't have. Okay, so... Is the defense going to be so bold, Michael, as to go and say, well, if he was drunk over here, maybe something was going on in jail? That's kind of a stretch. It really is. I think it's more to create the illusion that, again, the prosecution is not playing fair. This is a critical case. Eklund Mercy, so I hear your voice in my ear already saying, if I'm representing the officer, I'm telling him don't answer the drunk driving questions in the deposition for the Cruz case. Yeah, I mean, you definitely don't want him to... Uh, just admit to certain things, you know, he does have the right, well, uh, depending on what the judge orders, he does have the right to, you know, plead the fifth, you know, especially if he has a pending case, he can't just be like, oh, just admitting to DUIs, but it does go to his, you know, his judgment and what does he do as a, I mean, as a law enforcement officer, you're getting hit with DUIs, you don't make the best judgment. So that can definitely affect his credibility and definitely make a, you know, make a move for, for the defense here. Maybe they can accuse him of instigating this fight. Michael Eklund will see you at the end of the broadcast because still ahead tonight, we're back to the trial of a Florida man accused of killing his mother and his brothers. We discuss the DNA and the evidence from a medical examiner who eventually resigned from office for misusing taxpayer funds. That testimony is after the break. Let's go now to the testimony in the Florida case of a man accused of killing his mother and his brothers. Prosecutors in Pensacola are seeking the death penalty against Donald Hartung. Initial reports suggested the killings were somehow related to the Wicca religion. Investigators described a bloody crime scene here at the home where the victims were stabbed, beaten, and shot. Investigators later searched Donald Hartung's house, and inside there they found some unusual things, which again brought this case back to a possible religious motive. Investigators say victim John Smith had his throat slit and was beaten to death with a hammer. The defense wanted to know exactly whose DNA was found on the apparent murder weapon. His DNA is on the head, the heart, the metal part. The major is John, matches John. And Donald's excluded from that. Yes. Whose DNA is on the yellow shaft? Richard um, and John were included as possible contributors, and Von Seal and Donald were in the inconclusive zone. Which so means you don't know. Yeah, it's a fancy way to say you don't know. So when you're talking about stuff being inconclusive, that means you just don't know, right? Yes, that's why we have that zone. Okay, so you don't know. So let's go to the rubber handle of the hammer. Whose DNA is on that? Von Seal, Richard, John, and Donald were all included as possible contributors. That's not a, a certainty, that's a possibility. Yes. Okay, so you don't have any certainty that Donald Hartung's DNA is on that hammer? No, I just give the weight for the match. This, this. But you don't have any certainty? No. 
Detectives say Hartung killed his family for money. They point to the defendant's DNA found on his mother's checkbook as evidence of motive. The defense wanted to know more about how the defendant's DNA could have gotten on that checkbook. I took the swabbing from the outside of the checkbook. I took that would be the outside of the, the, the cover, right? Case, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and did you get Mr. Hartung's DNA on that? Yes, he was matched the complete form. On the outside of the checkbook? Yes. On the inside of the checkbook, you also took DNA swabs, correct? I swabbed the top check. Okay, and was my client's DNA on the top check? Uh, no, he was excluded. So, on this total exhibit, you have Mr. Hartung's DNA on the outside of the checkbook. Yes. And either on this zipper handle or this zipper handle or both, but you don't know. Yes. Do you know how long Mr. Hartung's DNA had been on the outside of the checkbook? I don't know. Do you know how long his DNA was either on that zipper handle or that zipper handle? No, I don't know. A medical examiner took the stand to describe the injuries to victim John Smith. The hammer head is seemingly a good match for this center wound. How many um, injuries did John appear to have to the top of his head? John appeared to have three, three separate injuries. The wound to the neck was three and three quarter inches in length with a sort of a zigzag reposition outline. The knife was repositioned, so it was, it was stuck and then it came out, causing two different cuts. The cause of death is combined effects of stab wound of neck and blunt impact of head. I say combined because it's difficult for me to know exactly which part of the wounds that he suffered killed him. And then the ME moved to Mother Von Seal Smith. Wounds on the top of Von Seal's head, clean, almost rounded edges, the beveling pattern. It's a bruise with a, a pale center. It's what happens when the hammer hits, the blood rushes out towards the edges. The injury to the left side of the neck extended from the anterior midline to three and a half inches to the left, so it was three and a half inches in length. It had a depth of up to four and a half inches, and it went through the left common carotid artery. The tip of the left fifth finger is traumatically amputated. Von Seal, cause of death is blunt impact of head. Now, if you had information at, at the time of your report that the pinky wound was intentionally inflicted, would that have changed your opinion as to her cause of death? Yes, I would have. Uh, if I had known that the pinky was something not even related to the beating of the head or the stabbing in the neck, then I would have worded it like John's cause of death and give him combined effects because at that point I would not be able to tell. And finally, the medical examiner described victim Richard Smith's injuries. Here's an entrance gunshot wound right here in the helix of the right ear. It hit the back of the ear as it came out and tunneled under the skin to exit. It did not enter the skull. The back of the left hand, and you can see that there is an injury here. It looks like a sharp force injury in a typical location for a defensive wound. The injury to Richard's neck, um, what can you tell the jurors about that? It was two and three quarter inches in length 
and it reached a depth up to two inches. And it also had that zigzag outline appearance to show that it was repositioned. And the path went through the common carotid artery on the left. The cause of death for Richard Smith is incised wound of neck. And the gunshot wound, while it may have hurt him and caused symptoms, I can't say that that's what caused his death because there's no, there's nothing fatal that I can say occurred because of it. Prosecutors are making their case against Hartung through the help of a jailhouse informant. Inmate Marlon Purifoy testified other inmates thought Hartung, the defendant, was a witch. This inmate says the defendant started talking about the murders during a conversation about Wicca. Purifoy himself was sentenced to 30 years in prison for beating his girlfriend with a hammer. Let's bring in our guest to wrap things up tonight. Eklund, so we've got jailhouse snitches. We've got a medical examiner playing funny with money. She quits her job because of it. We've got a crime scene tech who stole drugs from the evidence room and got in trouble herself. The jury has to believe these people. Who do you believe? No, no one. I believe no one. It makes no sense. And then did the jailhouse snitch, is he in prison for using a hammer to be his girlfriend and nobody made any connections? I am done. I, there's nobody I can believe. I think that this is a stupid case. I think that the state needed a little bit more information and they should not have um, put so much value into the jailhouse snitch. Okay, Eklund, tell me what you really think. <laughs> Michael Bryant, okay, so if your DNA is on a checkbook, does that somehow immediately mean a financial motive? Oh my gosh, they must have been taking money. Guilty, yes. No, no. I mean, obviously, it's somebody in the family. He's there every Tuesday whipping up the food. Why not have his hand on a checkbook at some point? That's ridiculous. Okay, and, and what do you make of this inmate testifying, Michael? I mean, you know, he, he gets up there, he tells what some of our guests have referred to as an almost too perfect story. Pretty detailed, yeah, pretty nice. I was impressed by the fact that he knew about the safe before the cops did. Of course, Eklund might suggest he knew about the safe because he was part of the scam. Uh, you know, but the thing is, the jury's got to decide whether to believe him. And if he doesn't have independent reasons to have those details, they came from the defendant. Okay, so it either was the defendant or it wasn't, I guess. And it's just a question who to believe. And that's why we have trials so that the jury can sit down and weigh credibility. That's why we do this entire exercise in every single case. Appreciate the insight tonight from Michael and Eklund. We'll see you both later here on other editions of the debrief later on this week. It's time to wrap up, though. Hope you enjoyed the broadcast. We'll be back here tomorrow at 5 o'clock with our recap of the day in court. I'll be in tomorrow morning as well, filling in for Jesse Weber.